1: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have two wonderful guests with me today and a really great show. Before we jump in, I do want to remind listeners that we now offer CME credit. So if you are looking for Category 1 CME credit, you can go to the website, acrac.com, click on the link and fill out a short um, reflection and get your CME credit that way. And that is provided by CMEFI, a great company that allows us to do that really easily. All right, so today I have with me Two people. This is actually a little bit like a reunion for me. I've got Dr. Catherine Chen and Dr. Jennifer Lucero. When I was a resident, Dr. Lucero was one of our OB anesthesia attendings, and Dr. Chen was in my class. We were co residents. And so this is really fun to have them back. They have recently published a really wonderful piece in the New England Journal of Medicine called Calling Out Aversive Racism in Academic Medicine. And we're going to talk about what that is and, and what led them to publish that and really learn a lot from these two wonderful physicians and writers. So welcome both of you to the show.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here.
1: So I'd love to start by just having each of you say a little bit for the audience about who you are and, and what your career looks like at this point, and, um, and then how, how you got interested specifically in this topic.
2: So I'm Catherine, happy did you, to start.
1: Or yeah, oh. Jen, please.
2: <laughs> Sorry. I was uh I was gonna just jump in here and uh let you know what I'm doing now. I I actually, um, as, as Jed mentioned, I was his attending at UCSF, and now I've transitioned to um, UCLA. And the role that I serve um, is the Associate Dean of Admissions for the medical school. So I oversee the admissions, the financial aid office, and I also do pipeline and outreach um, for the School of Medicine. Um, I also hold uh, a role within the Department of Anesthesia as the vice chair. Chair of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Um, and so, and I still get to do OB anesthesia and train uh, the the future um, uh, attendings in OB anesthesia, so I'm going to turn it over to Catherine. That's great, thanks, Jen. um,
3: Thanks, I'm an assistant professor at UCSF. I'm actually uh, mostly on the research side of things. Um, I matched as a research track resident back in 2009. Um, finished my training at UCSF and now I'm on faculty there. Um, and I got interested in this topic just because of some early events that happened to me when I was a resident. Um, that kind of opened my eyes to the prevalence of, um, racism in academic medicine, to be blunt. So, um, I'm really excited to be here and I'm really, um, excited by the reception that the piece has received so far.
1: Yes, and congratulations to both of you. Obviously, on on a an incredibly well written piece, and and of course publishing it in the, the New England Journal. I'm really glad that they were um, open to publishing it, and uh, I'm sure it was a process to to get it um, to get it through the ringer to get it in there. But well done. Um So why don't we start by uh, talking about the title itself? So uh, aversive racism. I'm guessing that many people haven't heard that term, or if they have, aren't quite sure what it means. So maybe start by just giving us a definition of, of what it is.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I, I think, you know, yes, it is uh, something that not many people have heard. I think um, when you think about aversive racism, uh, the concept of it is is really uh, a way that progressive or well-meaning intellectual folks, those that are in medicine and academics, um, they are able to act in a similar manner as an overt racist, but truly believe that they're not racist. And that that really, um, when you say the R word, it makes uh, people really uncomfortable. But really, when you think about it, you know, where we kind of look at this through that lens of uh, aversive racism, you start to see ways in which um, it can actually impact uh, both, you know, academics, academic medicine. um, And and that's really one of the drivers for why we needed to talk about this and and call it out. Um, But it really, uh, when you think about what aversive racism does, it it allows people, um, they they don't have to question what they're saying when they make aversive racist comments. It allows them to do an action or make a decision, um, but they can give reasonable non-racism explanations for their
1: actions. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put. And, um, you know, the word aversive is interesting, and it might be helpful to think if we know, and I, I don't know if we know the answer to this, but why... Uh, it's called averse of racism. In in other words, when I think about averse, I think, you know, I'm averse to going out in the cold weather, right? So is the idea that it's, you are averse to that one who is exhibiting these tendencies is averse to kind of admitting or realizing that they are racist. Is that where the, that the the term averse comes from?
2: It's actually more um, on an unconscious level. And that's where we sort of bring up the idea of, we think about implicit bias or it's been called unconscious bias, um, all of us have heard about the Harvard IAT, we talk about doing it all the time in many of these, um, you know, workshops uh, for DEI. Um, so it it goes along with that same idea of you have this bias, you have, um, and, and we can talk a little bit more about the other concepts in, that we brought up in, in social psychology that kind of lend itself to this, but it's really an individual isn't aware that they have this and, and they, but they, they have their, their mind sort of does this little trick where, you know, they'll use another reason. And that's that sort of aversive. It's not that they're intentionally saying, you know, I'm going to not promote this person, or I'm not going to uh, bring this person on board because they're black or they're Mexican or, you know, they're Asian. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, because of their race or their ethnicity, it's really more that they're not doing it. They don't even know they're doing it, and they're coming up with other reasons, um, which is why um, I think it was so critical to bring it up in in the in the context of academics and academic medicine.
1: Yeah, great. So it sounds like it's almost like their their brain, their unconscious mind, is is averse to kind of uh, of dealing with this or to realizing what it really is. Um, and that's, that makes sense to me as to kind of where that, that word comes from. So, um, Catherine, do you want to maybe give um, a couple examples of what, um, this might look like in practice and academic medicine?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on what Jen was saying. I think people don't want to admit that they have racist tendencies because it's just very, you know, touchy subject in our current society with all the things that have happened in the recent past. And, um, you know, so people try to come up with these justifications for decisions that they've made um, that kind of reinforce their view of themselves as not racist. So, for example, if you were interviewing someone for an open leadership position um, and you felt that, you know, they might not be as qualified as somebody else who potentially they would have the same qualifications, but because they are not a white male or they don't look like somebody that you had previously envisioned as um, leadership material, you know, for filling that role, you might justify it to yourself by saying, oh, you know, they were a good candidate, but they were just too junior, they didn't have enough experience. Or um, you might say they're just not the right fit for this opening. And it's not just what, we're, you know, not what we're looking for. And those are things that are pretty common um, when people rationalize their decisions um, for filling these leadership positions. Um, but it's something that's socially acceptable. And most people don't really question kind of the meaning underneath those statements um, and what they they really represent when you dig deep down
1: inside. And so let me ask you if I'm right about this, Catherine, is it that the person in your example, it's not that they're saying, okay, I don't like you know um, people who aren't white males. So I'm gonna come up with a reason to say no to this person. That would be kind of very overt, right? It's that they are saying to themselves, gee, I would love to hire this person. They're just not the right fit. And they don't realize that part of at least part of what's making them think that is that they don't fit the image they have in their head of of a quote unquote leader, which to them may look like a white man. And so it's it's an in that sense, it's much more unconscious. Is that right?
3: Exactly. A lot of people. uh, I think the reason why we wanted to define this term in our article was because it exists, but people don't even know that it exists and it affects their decisions and their behavior. Um, and so, as you pointed out, it's not that someone is actively trying to be racist or enact racist policies or um, behave in a racist manner, but um, it's kind of ingrained in us. And the, the society that we live in tends to be, um, you know, it's like there's structural racism, not just in medicine, but in the society that we are in. And so, All of these influences on our thought processes, unless you actually recognize them for what they are, it's easy to go through life um, without acknowledging the influence that those um, other factors have on your decision-making processes in an unconscious way.
1: And it strikes me as so much harder to address because of that, right? If it was something that people were doing kind of, quote unquote, on purpose, then, you know, that might actually be easier to address or at least just find people who aren't going to do it on purpose. but. If it's something people don't even realize they're doing, that is much harder to address. Um, and we'll get to kind of later, we'll talk a little about how we might start addressing it. Um, you give an example in the paper about how this could apply to um, applicants uh, to, for example, a residency program. Um, do you want to talk? one Would one of you want to just mention that and how you think it plays in there?
2: Yeah, that um, you're referring to we we talked about the um, I think in that um, example in the paper, it was about undergraduate admissions and we really liked this paper, because I think it really lended itself to when we think about admissions and residency and and medical school admissions. um, I I think what um, that paper really shows is, you know, you you can have some ambiguous criteria, and I think we can apply that throughout. the entire process of admissions for medical school admissions for residency and really leadership positions, you know, what makes a good leader. There's a lot of qualities that we can put together, um, but oftentimes there's, there's not, you know, a set of criteria. What makes a great resident? We talk about that all the time. It's, it's a little bit ambiguous. And we are trying to look holistically at applicants and not really rely solely on metrics of, you know, scores or grades and clerkships, because we've seen that that those those also have um, lots of bias built into them. So, you know, that this example that we gave in the paper was um, looking at um, and it was done by the uh, video to kind of show really this concept of aversive racism. What they did is they had um uh, students who were, you know, from there were college students, so they're progressive, you know, they they were, you know, what we would think of as an you know academic-minded person. They're in college, and they asked them, they were all white, and they asked them, we want you to rate um, these applicants for this college application. And they gave them um, you know, sort of two ends of it. All the applicants were either black or white, and they had the black and white applicants, each that had really strong SAT scores, strong GPA. And then they had another group that had a lower GPA, lower um, SAT scores. And um, then they had this middle ambiguous group that kind of wasn't, you know, really strong, wasn't weak. And and what they found was if it was the really strong applicants, regardless of whether, regardless of whether they were black or white. They they would they would um, if they were strong, they would they would not have any difference. We just take both the black and white applicants if they were the weak applicants with the lower grades, lower standardized test scores, they didn't take either the black or white. But when you had that middle ground that ambiguous, you know, not quite clear and you had to leave it to your judgment, the white subjects, which were the college students chose the white applicants over the black applicants. And that really gets at sort of the, the crux of what we were saying is this, this happens, this is what we see. It's what we see in admissions, it's what we see in residency applications, it's what we see at the tables looking for leaders. It's this ambiguous criteria and when we have, um, that's when aversive racism is allowed to sort of creep in and, and show itself.
1: Yeah, I thought that example of that paper by Davidio and colleagues was, was really interesting that study they did that you just laid out. And, you know, you can imagine that when you're looking at applicants for a chair position or, you know, a dean position or, you know, any any a major leadership position, you're going to have a huge number of very qualified people, right? This is not like you're going to have people who are totally unqualified. So it's going to come down to that sort of, uh, you know, ambiguous criteria for deciding between people because everyone's going to have the full professorship and the many many publications and the his leadership uh history and uh so i, I think that seems like this would really play in um and, and so i think that that strikes me right on uh, and that was a study um are there examples you know you could give like uh, from from uh, i guess real life or from from academic medicine or or something that would kind of bring this home
2: yeah, yeah, it's interesting as we were working on this, um, the article, um, we had this uh, experience where, and, and I think, you know, Catherine and I talked about this, it was, you know, really a real life experience happening as we were drafting the edits, and I thought we have to get this out. So we had um, at, at UCLA, um, our our dean um, of the medical school stepped down, and so we were um, in a situation where there was, um, you know, a decision of we had to appoint an interim dean, and how that process was going to take uh, part. What the, what were we going to do? How is it going to happen? And there was a lot of discussion. Now, the um, interim dean uh, position, they actually had named earlier an an executive vice dean, and so in the past there was a system, it was almost you know, a precedent that the last two times this happened, the executive vice dean took that position and was the interim dean. The interesting part that took place was um, the, in this case, the executive vice dean was a black man. And there everybody had expected that the precedent would take place and, and that person would be appointed there was all of a sudden a change and they were going to now do this search and they, they they created a whole different system for how they were going to do this. And what they did is they did a call out and they said, we're going to do nominations. And, and the interesting part was the people that made the decision were three white people that interviewed the nominated candidates and, and the, the, Executive Vice Dean, who was uh, the black man, he basically was part of, you know, that he was nominated and he went through this process and as I was watching this unfold, I said, well, we have data on this and let's see how this how this goes down. And as it turns out, you know, what do you do when you have three white people making a decision about who is going to become an interim dean. you know, when you that's a that's a prime way to look for uh averse of racism, it's going to display itself right there. And and when we we looked at that, you know, I was watching this unfold as we were writing the article and I thought, I really hope this isn't going to go how I think it's going to go. But evidence shows this is what's going to happen. You know, it's ambiguous criteria. Now, you know, the most qualified person would be the person that was in that executive vice dean position. They know what's happening. They're aware of everything. They The transition is very easy. Um, but you know what ended up happening? Um, a, a white male was appointed in that position, and everybody was aghast. Um, I would say, you know I was not surprised. Um, it was expected, given what we know about aversive racism and the process that we see in academic medicine. Um, But it was it was a very good example, disappointingly, because I think, you know, part of our point of writing this is to talk about how we need to diversify. Um, But this was an example of exactly what what happens um, when you have ambiguous criteria and, you know, a a group that is only one race, ethnicity, making these decisions.
1: And presumably that's such a great example. uh, Presumably. The uh, who we don't know, but presumably these three people were sitting there thinking we're going to be completely, you know, even keeled here, we're going to apply very, you know, similar criteria, very strict criteria that we're just going to look and we're going to pick the best candidate, right, they they were presumably not sitting there thinking we have to figure out a way to make sure we don't pick this black man to be the interim dean they were thinking we're being completely fair, they may have even been saying we're not even looking at race right we're not we don't even know who's who's the race of these <laughs> yeah, other people right uh, and yet
2: which is another aversive it's just like i don't see color right it's right. That's a classic one
1: <laughs> right and so presumably that's what was happening and yet the outcome as you said was predictable because there's a pattern of this happening because this this plays in this way let's look at um some of the other things you discussed some of the kind of social um, psychology concepts that play into this so one is legitimizing myths. So can you talk a little about what those are and how they play out in academic medicine?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to tackle that. And, and then, um, you know, we can, Catherine can chime in if, uh, if she has some examples, I think that, um, You know, it's it's important to um, think about this. You know, when I I mentioned that example, um, it's it's a great example to bring in this idea of legitimizing myths. But but before we do that, you always, you know, we we talked about this group based hierarchy. So this we looked at social dominance theory, um, and and really the the idea behind that, and is is the work that I did prior to to going to medical school. I, I Um, did my master's in in psychology and that was social dominance theory was the area that I I worked in. And it's really looking at societies organized by a group based hierarchy so there is the dominant group. They have most of what society values. Uh, They, they um, do what they can obviously to keep it that way. And then there are individuals. Who are part of that subordinate group and they can be in various levels, but they're part of that subordinate group. And so when you think about that, um, you know, you, if you want to be part of that, um, you want a leadership position and you're in the subordinate group. um, It is, there's these subtle messages that you can achieve a leadership position as long as you maintain that hierarchy that's been set up and show deference to the dominant group. And so one of the most compelling ways that they can do that is these ideas of legitimizing myths. And so the idea is, you know, the dominant group is in that position um, because of manifest destiny. They deserve that power. They're, you know, self-made. All of these things that we tell um, people that, you know, the reason that this, you know, white male is in this position is that they they uh, worked hard. They deserved it. They had, you know, and an not understanding how society is set up. Um, and that sort of brings in the idea of, you know, the impact that structural racism has. Um, it also talks about, you know, when people when I when I bring up this idea of this hierarchy, someone will always pick, you know, but there is, you know, X. Person that happens to be black or Mexican or part of you know a, a marginalized group and says but they're leading this, but you have to ask yourself what it what it means to be in that position and how much they have to grapple with being deferential right so I think um you know when you look at the example I gave with the um, interim dean you know that individual was challenging some of the, the power structure and saying, well, should we be doing this and should we be doing that? And so in a way, um, the aversive of racism played into this idea of this social dominance. Well, if this person is gonna not be deferential to this, to us and, and allow us to preserve this hierarchy, then we don't want them to be in that leadership position because it disrupts it. And I think you can look at this social dominance theory and look at this group-based hierarchy, sort of what we're seeing broadly in the country and, and kind of how this, whenever there's this disruption, there is this reset in this idea of these legitimizing myths. And so, I, Catherine, I, I just want to turn it over to you to, to talk about this as well. And I'm sure you have some examples.
3: Yeah, I think um, one of the most common ones, at least on the research side, is, you know, you see the people who've made it in research. They're the ones that are successful at getting the grants and writing the papers and, a lot of people will look back at their success and say that, you know, they worked really hard. They uh, started from scratch, started with nothing, had to uh, achieve everything on their own. They didn't have anybody help them, um, which may be true. That's how they perceive their success. But when you kind of dig a little bit deeper, there are advantages that some people have that other people don't. And um, part of the flip side of legitimizing myths is that, When a a group that's marginalized is not as successful as the dominant group, then often those uh, failures are attributed to um, characteristics of that subordinate group rather than acknowledging the fact that structural racism exists that um, impairs or impedes their ability to achieve the same level of success. So for example, if you were a part of a marginalized group and you didn't make it in research, you didn't get the R01, you didn't make it to full professor, Um, the the, uh, explanations for those failures will be attributed to that person saying they didn't want it enough, they didn't try hard enough. um, And it's never uh, acknowledged that there is a system in which they're working that is kind of set up against them. Um, Whereas if you are in the dominant group and you are successful and you don't actually see the system around you, it's actually harder for the person in the high the highest um higher the the dominant, I don't want to say cast here, but kind of <laughs> the dominant group, um it's easy for them to go through life without acknowledging that a hierarchy even exists. Whereas everybody in the subordinate groups knows I mean if you talk to anybody that's not in the dominant group, you everybody knows that there is a hierarchy and that there is a way to move up. But if you're in the subordinate group, the way to move up is to adopt characteristics of the dominant group and kind of adhere to their social norms. And um, And so there's a little bit of a, a compromise that's happening when you're trying to be successful in that um, type of space. You have to actually mold yourself into the expected form of uh, whoever's successful in that dominant group
1: and it's so compelling you know you, you said uh, that it's easy and and very um tempting for people in the dominant group to not acknowledge the existence of the hierarchy because of course you wouldn't want to right i mean you are you if you're if you have achieved success you want to believe that it was because of your own hard work and that you got it because you worked harder than anyone else and and earned it more than anyone else it would it, you could see how reluctant someone would be To say, well, actually I, you know, had some advantages here that others didn't have. So it seems to me like legitimizing myths, you know, it's almost like if you had two, to make a very simple example, you had two people, you know, uh, who were both going to apply online for the same job and one had internet access and one didn't. And the application was only available online and they both tried, you know, then they both got, you know, four days to apply. And then the one who submitted it because they had internet and they got it in says, well, you know, well, I, I clearly worked hard enough to get this job, right? Rather than realizing that the other person never had a chance because they didn't, they were fighting against a, a st- the starting point was not equal, right? One of them had the ability to do it and one didn't, but it would be very easy to say, well, you know, clearly the person who got the job worked harder and the one who didn't just was not as hard of a worker, right? Without realizing the structural issues that played into the way it all turned out. Um, okay, so right, yeah. the other... <laughs> What's that?
2: I was saying, yeah, that's that's exactly it. It's
1: yeah, you know the right. other
2: person gets gets labeled, you know, they're lazy, you know, and and I'm I'm the hard worker. It's a, it's a perfect mm-hmm. example.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So the issue of implicit bias, it's come up a couple of times. You talk about it as another one of these kind of uh, concepts that factor in here. It's probably worth taking a minute to just describe what what is implicit bias and how what role does that play.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, when we think about implicit bias, um, we also talk about it as unconscious bias, and um, it's it's really broadly a bias that one uh, has towards a group that's perceived different than them. It can be race, it can be religion, it can be sexual orientation, and so sort of broadly defined. And it's the idea behind it is is it's it's unconscious, right? So you you don't know, um, and I think you know we it's, it's something that, you know, we always looked at the, the IET is just one of those ways that you can sort of get at it, but you know, it is, it is this, um, bias that you, that you don't really know, um, exists. And, and I think we all, everyone has it. I think it's just a question of sort of acknowledging, um, you know, what is, what is your, your bias. And, and interestingly, you know, you'll find that it's not so, you know, because, um, I'm Mexican and indigenous, it doesn't mean that I have a bias. You know, I, I wouldn't be biased, you know, to my own community, right? So it there is this concept that we talk about of internalized racism, right? So it's either a conscious or unconscious acceptance of this racial hierarchy by members of the less dominant group. And that can be on display by, you know, someone who is Black, does a IET, And has a preference for white people over black people that that's that that's the the concept of, you know, you everybody should do it because we don't know kind of what we have, but there is this, you know, concept of of internalized racism where you sort of feel like, you know, I I always describe to my, you know, junior faculty and and um, my medical students and residents that are UIM, you know, we have been challenged in this country to the the goal that we have to like sort of make it in this world is that we have to make white people comfortable around us and that's part of this you know you internalize some of this you know i need to you know see the world the way they see the world and the challenge that that is um it it puts a lot of stress and burden on those individuals who are not part of the dominant group and i think we're starting to see in the medical students and the residents the sort of pushing back on this which I, I think is so impressive to see
1: yeah uh, you know I think one of the key things you mentioned here is that it's unconscious and everyone has it and the key you know I think sometimes we get stuck I had this interesting conversation about this with Matt Wixon when we did a, a podcast on this um, on his radar initiative but you know is is that it's easy for someone I think to think oh you're saying I have this implicit bias you're saying I'm a bad person whereas No, right? Everyone has some implicit bias. Like you said, the key is not that if you have it, you're bad. The key is just trying to figure out how it's affecting you, especially if you're in a leadership position where it may be affecting people who you, you know, around you and and, uh, who may be, um, you know, applying for jobs or whatever, and then to try to address it. Right. It doesn't it doesn't make it. I think once if people feel like, oh, we're, here they are, they're sitting here saying that I'm a bad person because I have no, we're just saying that you're a person. Right. Everyone has. It. But the, the question is not do you have it? It's are you interested in figuring that out and then trying to address it? And, and Catherine, you know, um, talk a little bit about um, how that may play out.
0: Stay with us. We'll be right back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.
3: I think that you hit on a key point, which is to highlight that you're not a bad person uh, to acknowledge that you have biases. I think everybody has biases and that's just the way we are as human beings. Um, And one of the examples that we had to cut out of our article was actually a TEDx talk by a guy named Jay Smooth, where he gives the analogy that, um, you know, these racist racial, sorry, the The um, DEI trainings and workshops that we're required to take on an annual basis, a lot of people view that as a one-time event. Like, for example, there's a a brushing teeth analogy versus the tonsillectomy analogy. So a lot of people view it as a tonsillectomy, where once you've done one of these trainings, you've fixed your internal racism or your implicit biases, and you're fixed and you're no longer racist. Whereas his example is it should be more like brushing teeth or dental hygiene where you have to brush your teeth. You have to floss twice a day. If you miss a day, you're going to start getting some, you know, plaque. Um, and then it'll eventually develop into a cavity. So you've got to constantly maintain this, um, conscientiousness towards brushing your teeth and maintaining your dental hygiene. And I think that's the same idea for, um, you know, trying to improve on this front and acknowledging your implicit biases and trying to. Um, you know, move forward and contribute to the solutions rather than perpetuating the ongoing structural racism is to to not be offended or defensive when someone points out that maybe you had to, you know performed a microaggression or maybe somebody was offended by something that you said that you didn't realize um, might offend somebody uh, rather than um, going into a defensive posture. Um, people who have Spinach in their teeth. When someone points it out, they're not really offended. They're like, Oh, thank you so much. I, I didn't know I was walking around with spinach in my teeth. And I think that's the same idea. When someone kind of highlights that something you said or did was a little bit, um, you know, uh, hurtful to another marginalized group rather than getting defensive, you should actually thank that person for being vulnerable and being willing to talk to you. Cause I, and I think that's a sign of trust also that they think that you're open and willing to make changes. And I think that's something that we can all do to improve um, each of our own um, unconscious biases.
1: Yeah, so much of this is about, like you said, good communication, right? Is, if you are afraid to tell someone that they've done this, then they'll never learn. Just like you gave a great example. I use it all the time of broccoli or spinach in your teeth. You want to know that. And on the flip side, if someone is so afraid of being uh, attacked for something that they say, then they're not going to, you know, seek that feedback. They're going to be, they, and they may not even ask the questions of, gee, I wonder if this is an acceptable thing to say uh, or not, you know, it'd be good to be able to ask that in a safe place so that you could get that feedback of no, actually that is hurtful to people or it's not. But if you're so afraid of even asking the question, because you feel like you'll get attacked, then people won't, and they won't learn. So, so much of it is about good, communication, supportive communication. And I, I think we need to do better there. The last concept that uh, you brought up in the paper is in-group favor- favoritism. Um, and uh, we've, I think, touched on this already, but maybe just say what, what that is and and if we haven't completely covered it, how that
0: plays in here.
2: Yeah, I think um, Catherine was touching on this a little bit. Um, and, and just to sort of uh, complete you know, the, the idea of the in-group favoritism is, you know, or we think about in-group bias, um, you know, all of us, we, we sort of associate, we have some identities that we, we associate, lots of them. Sometimes they're, I always give, um, when I'm, I'm doing a talk, I'll, I'll give, you know, the sports, you know, everybody can, you know, get behind sports. And so, you know, we're in uh, San Francisco and LA, and that's, you know, where I, I, i lived in two different places right there's the dodgers and the giants and there's always this you know fun you know rivalry that happens and people are Dodger fans; they're Giants fans. And um, an example of this, you know, in group bias is that, you know, you will um, you you see your if you're a Dodger fan, you see the other Dodger fans. You're you're part of this community, this group. And if you see a a Giant fan, that's your out group. So if you're standing in a line um, to get a hot dog at the game, and you're with your Dodger fans, and the line is kind of wiggling around. It's hard to tell where the end of the line is and your Dodger fans are sitting there and all of a sudden a giants fan goes into the line, not sure where it is. And it looks like they're cutting in. Um, you're, if you're showing this sort of in-group bias, you're saying, Hey, you know, you're cutting in that line and you make this internal attribution about that, that giants fan. You're like, they're always trying to get ahead. They're always trying to cheat and get, you know, that's, that's those giants fans. Right. But if that same thing happens and it's a Dodger uh, fan that comes in and you're with your Dodger group, you're like, oh, hey, th- buddy, it's the end of the line. And it's like, oh, I know it's confusing. The line doesn't make sense. There's an external reason for that. So you you basically favor your own group, whatever that group is, at the expense of the out group. And you can see that this happens in race, religion, um, you know, what schools. I, I see this all the time. Um, Where, you know, I went to Cal State Northridge and in the admissions process, you know, throughout the years that I've been doing medical school admissions, you know, there's a there's a negative bias about the CSUs from other places. You know, people will say, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm from the Ivy Leagues," and there's this positive, you know, attribution. And if you say you're from the CSUs, it's like, well, you know, that's that's is that really a strong place? You know, you have these negative, um, and you can see how that would impact someone um, even at an interview. You know, if you're, you're a I I. I Went to med school at Yale, so it's like any other person that was a Yaley, It's like, oh, you're a Yaley. All of a sudden, I'm part of this group that gets all the accolades, all the better. Even if I don't necessarily carry those, even if I if I make a mistake on an interview, oh no, it's, it was she was nervous, you know. But it's okay, like that happens. Whereas somebody else might have been, well, they were not prepared. So that that favoritism comes up. A lot, and you can see it absolutely with different races and religions.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's great uh, and to explain kind of how that plays in. And then, you know, am I right in saying that bringing it back to aversive racism, it's not realizing how all of these things play in that then forms aversive racism, right? So it's in saying, oh, that, you know, oh, Catherine's applying for this job, you know, oh, she just doesn't really feel like someone who's going to fit into our culture here. And she doesn't just doesn't feel like someone who's going to fit. Or my my gut here is that she's just not the right person for the job and not realizing that all those things we just talked about in group favoritism, implicit bias, legitimizing myths may be actually playing a role there. But we're averse to admitting you know, our brain, our mind is adverse to that. So we just say, oh, it's just you know that I, I trust my gut here.
2: Exactly. It's aversive racism is the mechanism that it's the way that we uh, use to keep our in groups uh, in, you know, favor our in groups in a way to keep the social hierarchy established where there's a dominant group on top and a, and a subordinate group on the bottom. And so one of the ways we do that is aversive racism.
1: So I think it would probably, um, we've touched upon kind of a little bit how one might go about trying to address this. And I'm sure there are going to be lots of people listening who think, look, I don't want to have this play a role in my life. Certainly, there are going to be people who, for example, are residency program directors or department chairs who are going to say, well, I definitely don't want this to play a role in my hiring. So how uh, and for residency program directors or, you know, folks in, in your role, Jen, you know, people who are making these selections, whether it's for undergrad or whether it's for medical school or residency, uh, they're thinking, look, how do I do this? How do I do this in a way that that doesn't um, have all of this play in? And uh, so what do we say to them? Well How do we start to, as you say in the paper, you know, we need to do the difficult work that is going to start addressing this. So, So how do we do that?
3: So I think the first thing is just to raise awareness that this concept is um, affecting our judgments and our decisions. Um, I think the reason why this got accepted, we were actually very excited when it got accepted because we were not 100% optimistic that the New England Journal would be receptive to the things that we're talking about in this article. But um, I actually spent a few months searching the New England Journal's website and searching for the terms aversive racism to make sure nobody else had submitted a similar piece uh, to what we were planning on writing. Um, And it's so interesting, because this concept has been around for a very long time. This is not new information. And if you are in the social psychology world, I think you would be familiar with a lot of these terms. But it hasn't really been applied to academic medicine. And so one of the reasons we decided to write this piece, in addition to our own observations, being within the academic medicine system is that um, there was a very prominent podcast that came out last spring uh, um, 2021 uh, in which the podcast hosts kind of denied that structural racism still existed in medicine and they were not talking about academic medicine per se they were talking about in medicine in general and even talking about um, patient care and the fact that they didn't think that structural racism was an issue for disparities in the care that um, different patients received based on their race. And I think it was important for us to kind of expand that conversation to focus on the people within the system. Um, I think academic medical centers train, you know, medical students, residents, junior faculty, that this is kind of where we all get ingrained in terms of how we perceive the world and how we perceive, you know, uh, how we can be effective with patient care. But it's also, I think, um, the place that we learn some of these hierarchical um, issues uh, and, but we go through it without actually acknowledging that they exist. And so I think part of the goal of this piece was just to raise awareness that it's not just affecting um, healthcare and disparities uh, out in the world, but it also affects people's opportunities within the academic medical system um, and the ability for uh, different, you know, marginalized groups to even have a chance to succeed And I also want to do a little side commentary about being an Asian American woman in medicine. Um, We actually wrote a piece that we cited in our article about the fact that um, a lot of um, the demographic data with regards to the breakdown of the academic ranks, so assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, um, and even deans, they don't actually look at it uh, and they don't look at the intersection of um, gender and race, they only look at race independently and then gender independently. But when we actually looked at the double AMC data, we found that even though there's a lot of um, Asian American men and women physicians, when you go up in rank, um, there's fewer and fewer Asian Americans in those uh, positions of leadership and influence. And so a lot of the conversation um, has been focused on. These people who are underrepresented in medicine for good reason. But I do want to highlight that um, aversive racism affects people from every subordinate group, not just people who are underrepresented in medicine. And I think a lot of the effort that we're, you know, trying to raise awareness about is that it's it's not just talking about, you know, blacks, black Americans or um uh, Americans or uh you know Native Americans, it's actually affecting anybody else who's in the subordinate class.
1: Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out, Catherine. And so, you know, this is obviously affecting huge numbers of people and having wide ranging effects. So how do we start to think about doing better?
2: I think it's a, it's, it's a great question and something we, you know, we always are asking um, ourselves and, and of course, those that work in the Jedi field, like what do we need to do? And, and, I think, you know, as we were writing this and and why we broke it down and and talked about these social psychology concepts, it's for us to really understand the mechanism of how this happens, what it what each component has, because in order for us to improve and make change, we have to understand the mechanism, Um, I think, you know, it it's been interesting, the reception, because, you know, people have really said, wow, okay, thank, you know, thankfully, you're telling us about this, this is great. Other people have been, um, you know, again, sort of offended by it. Um, But I think we have to, it's always we have to look at it from, you know, think about, you know, we, we look at the mechanism of cell signaling, you know, we have to look at it that in the same way when we think about JEDI. So how do we how do we look at this problem? You know, it's sort of, you know, one of the things that, we talk about um for admissions and this this also plays into um we look at residency applications is obviously holistically looking at the applicant but we gotta have more than that we have to have committees that come from different experiences we have to have those that have different lived experiences whether you know in addition to race and ethnicity that do different things that have different um you know parts of of what their um, experience is in academics, and then that committee um, has to have what we call, you know, we do this for our admissions committee, a brave space. That's different than a safe space, but a brave space, and I think, you know, Jed, you talked a little bit about that sort of communication and being open to, we have to be okay being able to say, you know, when you said this, it sounds like you were, there was a bias there, and can we talk about that, and so... In that brave space, I'm feeling comfortable bringing something that I heard and interpreted a certain way as a bias and you're comfortable saying, okay, yeah, let me think about this for a moment. And and in order to do that, you have to have trust. And and we've talked about restorative justice and and how we do that in, in medicine. And that also is about trust. And so you have to bring a group together that's diverse in many different ways, not just in race and ethnicity, but it's diverse in many ways. You have to be willing to uh, hear people out and have that brave space. And that group has to stay together, you know, longitudinally because that, that's how you create that trust. And that's how you build out um, and counteract these, you know, in-group favoritism and the social hierarchy. Um, because then you you have people that are in different. Groups and can say, you know, I, I just want to want to ask about this, and I, I think that's one of the steps that we we need to make. It's it's hard in some specialties. Anesthesia is not an incredibly diverse from race and ethnicity, but you can reach out to other you know specialties and have people come in, and that's that's kind of the 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 joy that I have in in admissions is that we've assembled a group, a committee that is across different specialties that are MD, that are PhD, they're MD, PhD, different specialties that they do different race and ethnicities. And we have our students and our students have a voice and we empower them you know, with this idea of the brave space. And I, I think you, you have to be you know, the other part of this. And, and I think Catherine was talking about this with our article, we looked at the leadership The leadership is very skewed as much as we have made inroads in diversifying the physician workforce and trying to make medical school and even when we think about residents, but we got to look at the other end too. In fact, we cannot wait to let that pipeline, we have to start making big decisions at the leadership level and choosing your chairs wisely is so critical because they are the ones that really impart the value and what's important and if they value diversity if they're willing to make the hard you know challenges that they need to do to 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 diversify and make these decisions that's that's actually that's that's what leadership is right it's going to get everybody else to sort of you know come along and and I've been very fortunate at, at UCLA um, Dr. Canison was was a co-author on this, and and you know he encouraged me to, to to write about this, and and said we need to get this out, we need to talk about this, and so I I think your leaders are so important.
1: Yeah, thank think, you. Yeah, Catherine. Yeah, I just go wanted ahead.
2: to follow up on that because I also think that it's
3: important to not just um, you know put. A DEI vice chair or you know whatever director of DEI position there, but not actually empower them to um, address the issues that are ongoing within that department or division. But actually make it so that that person has the um, ability to bring issues to the you know the C-suite or to the uh, the department leadership, um, so that if there are issues that are identified, they can be addressed and people don't feel like it's just when the Addressing, but that there's no teeth behind um, the diversity initiatives um, that are being adopted.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I just want to define the term JEDI because it's come up a couple of times. So uh, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So if if folks uh, heard um, Jen referring to JEDI, that's what she's saying. Um, You know what? I'm curious, what do you all? to think about um, when you're thinking about admissions decisions or, you know, whether that's ranking decisions for residency, who to offer interviews to, et cetera, looking not just at kind of where someone is, but distance traveled. Right. And I I, I wonder if that is one small piece of a way to address some of the structural uh, unfairness that we talked about, that people aren't all starting in the same way that if you have somebody who, you know, maybe they didn't get the 260 on step one, but they, you know, had to work four jobs to put themselves through college and medical school that their distance traveled to get their two twenty is actually much greater than the person who you know had you know the top test prep company working with them all along to get their two sixty and that you know rather than say let's just look at scores looking at distance traveled is maybe does that is that something that can help in in this way?
2: I'm I'm happy to chat on this. That we talk about this all the time in in med school admissions. Um, I always say that, um, and this can be applied to residency as well. Um, distance traveled so um, is is a really important part, point when we think of holistic um, review. It's um, looking at someone and saying the distance that they've traveled and, and what their perseverance and resilience is that they've they've had to to do to overcome that. But I also think that you know on the other side, you know, someone should not be penalized because they came from privilege. But I always say, you know, what do they do with that privilege? You should be doing something with that privilege that's actually improving society, improving those that maybe don't have the same advantages that you, you had. And so I value both of those, um, in, and I think that's really important for us to look at. Um, I do think, um, we don't tend to understand. And partly that's because, again, the the vast majority of the medicine community hasn't had food insecurity, hasn't had housing insecurity, hasn't had to work multiple jobs. It's just, it's the way that, you know, the, the, the education system has failed many people in our society. And that's that's part of what we talk about when we talk about structural racism. And I think, you know, again, that's compounded by those legitimizing myths, right? So I, we, you absolutely need to look at one's distance traveled, their lived experience, um, not to, and, and it's why I bring it up, is that it's not that I'm, I'm only looking at I'm I'm looking at someone who has come from privilege, and I'm looking at what they've done with that privilege. And so that's really important, too.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of
2: sense.
3: And I think as a follow on to that, I think when you were talking about solutions or possible things that individuals can do who really identify um, with the things that we've written in this article and acknowledge that they do have implicit biases and, you know, in group preferences. And, um, you know, I think one really important thing is if you are in a position where you're in the dominant group, you can use that position on behalf of the people around you. And actually, you know, we talk about allyship a lot um, in DEI. Um, but it's hard to actually know what to do or what to say um, when you're in a position to speak up. And I think one of the things um, that's important is when there is an uncomfortable moment or situation in which you as a bystander have the ability to just walk away, ignore the situation, say it's not your business, not your problem, versus you can actually kind of reach down and help the people in that scenario um, and not from the, you know, the white savior perspective necessarily, but, you know, again, like just trying to advocate for people who don't have the voice, don't have the power, um, don't have the position to advocate for themselves. Somebody who is in that dominant position can definitely use their um, power to speak up on behalf of someone who is marginalized.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, this has been such a, a useful and, and rich discussion, and, and I really think it'll be helpful for people out there to start thinking about this and just putting names to some of what's going on and start thinking about how, how it may be affecting them or the people around them and how they can start to try to address it. So I want to thank you both. Any last uh, comments about this before we move on?
2: I just want to thank you for uh, hosting us. It's been great to chat with you. And I and I love our reunion.
1: Yes, me too. Yes. How fun for, for so many yeah, reasons. Ed and, and I
2: spent many hours together
3: as interns <laughs> and residents. So.
1: Yes. And it's it's always really fun. I I think folks out there who have already done residency will know this. I always tell our residents, you know, you're going to these these people who you're going through this this challenging path with that is residency. You know, you're going to always have a connection to them for the rest of your life, uh, even if you don't see them for years. You're, you'll see them at a conference, uh, and you know it, you'll you'll just be able to sit down and talk for hours because you'll be remembering, you know, what it was like as a resident and catching up on what's happened since. So it's a really special um, time to to go through that, and then to have wonderful colleagues like Catherine and and wonderful old attendings like uh, Jen, which is not to say that you're old, only that it was a while ago that you were. Our um, well, let's turn to the portion of the show where we make random recommendations. Uh, anything you would share? with the audience that they should check out something for fun or, or interest. Um, Jen, do you want to go first?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to go. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, uh, pivot over to Catherine. I would say, um, if we're looking at fun things to read, I would say, um, fun and intense, um, you know, to go with the, with the Jedi theme, uh, that we've been talking about the book cast, um, to really kind of dig into, um, kind of history and what we've, um, it touches a lot, a lot on what we've been talking about is a, is a really great book. Um, and we're doing that actually, um, we have an anesthesia book club, and we're actually doing that, uh, going over that book. It also um, is a book that we do. We do every year do a book club for the School of Medicine, and so that's the book we're doing. And um, we've been, it's been amazing. We are going to have um, the author give, uh, she's the graduation speaker, so we're really excited about that. So really great book for um, folks to, to check out, and you can listen to it on audibles, too. I'll pivot. Well, to it's Kathy. definitely...
1: It's definitely on my list. Thank you. Um, how about you, Catherine?
2: Yes, I just want to follow up on that because
3: um, for people who don't have time to read books because they have young children at home or for whatever reason, I actually listen to my audiobooks during my commute. So it might take me six months to finish cast, but I'm actually three quarters of the way done with it. And it is an outstanding book, kind of really eye opening and kind of, again, puts names to a phenomenon that you see every day, but you don't recognize until someone points it out to you. Um, but I do want to have a fun recommendation that's not related to DEI. Um, and I'm actually Korean. Most people don't know I'm Korean American because my last name is Chen, but, um, I've been watching a ton of Korean dramas on Netflix and they're, if you have a Netflix subscription, you should take advantage. I don't even watch, uh, you, you know, with television in English anymore. All of the things I watch are Korean with the English subtitles. Um, and if you want a beginner one to kind of ease your way into the Korean drama world, um, I think they still have Crash Landing on You that came out at the very beginning of the pandemic in March, 2020. Um, but it was still one of all, my all time favorite dramas and it got everything that you would want in a Korean drama, much less a regular drama. Um, and it's- including the, the co-stars are now, I think they're still dating. And I think that came about after they filmed <laughs> that drama. So I'm all like, ah, oh, okay, there it goes. My hand in. but.
1: But yeah. it's also, it's called Crash Landing on You.
3: Crash Landing on You. Yeah. Uh, It's kind of a love story, but also has uh, a lot of um, commentary on the tensions between North and South Korea. So it's very interesting. Um, It also talks about the class differences in both societies. um, And it's really, really compelling drama, both from the story and the commentary.
1: That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um And I will recommend a book that I just finished, uh, which I did listen to mostly on tape, though some I go back and forth between listening and reading, but it's called The Codebreaker by an author named Jennifer Doudna, who just won the Nobel Prize uh, for her work and, with CRISPR. Um, and the full title is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. It's by Walter Isaacson. And it is fascinating. It, I, I'm telling you, it's about science, but it does not read like a scientific book. It reads like a novel, and it is just incredibly interesting about the history of CRISPR, which is the, if you don't know, is the gene editing kind of um, uh, technique that is relatively new since really 2012 or so, and uh, that in such a short time, from a paper she wrote in 2012 to, I believe, 2020 was when she won the, um, the Nobel Prize for it, and it's just really revolutionized a lot of things. And then he gets into the ethics of it, too, and what What does it mean to be able to easily edit the genome? What happens when we start editing the germline? And what should and shouldn't be kind of, you know, allowed in terms of what we edit and and just the implications of that are really interesting. So I highly recommend checking out that book. I want to thank uh, both of you so much for being here for a really, really important and uh, enriching discussion. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show.
3: Thanks. Thank you for having us. It was great to see you. Um, And hopefully we'll see each other again when COVID becomes non-COVID. Yes. <laughs> hopefully sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah. I, think I
1: look forward edemic, to it. But, all, right. all right. Thank you Take both. Take care. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Woolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's patreo dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks as always to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Doctors Kimia Kashkuli and April Liu are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.